Transmission to Cosmopolis. 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 Adjust your earwax, my friends, according to socio-astronomic analysis, long-lasting suspicious seismic connectivity, and unprecedented volatility in the price of frozen pizza and related commodities. Can only indicate the very real possibility that human life may once again be possible in the very near future. This is the first transmission from the Intergalactic Railroad. We have come from beyond the stars to inform you there is no intelligent life elsewhere. There is only noise and radio chatter and bullshit. Here's a sample of all that there is for the next half an hour. Through the endless process of natural selection, three basic strategies for surviving winter's rigors have evolved. Migration, hibernation, and resistance. They are various in theme, of course, but in one form or another, these are the options. What they amount to, in an evolutionary context, is a choice between avoidance and confrontation. In a broader sense, though, each of these options confronts the season in its own way. Even the choice of leaving a frozen landscape in favor of more southern latitudes is, in reality, a desperate stand against winter. I'm sure I saw You haven't seen anyone. But I'm certain I have. You haven't seen anyone. Well, then get your shit together. Get it all together and put it in a backpack. All your shit. So it's together. And if you gotta take it somewhere, take it somewhere, you know? Take it to the shit store and sell it. Or, or put it in a shit museum. I don't care what you do. You just gotta get it together. Get your shit together. At the end of the show, the hypnotist told his subjects, Awake. Something unusual happened. One of the subjects awoke all the way. This had never happened before. 
His name was George Nutta, and he blinked out of the sea of faces in the theater, at first unaware of anything out of the ordinary. Then he noticed, spotted here and there in the crowd, the non-human faces, the faces of the fascinators. They had been there all along, of course, but only George was really awake. Only George recognized them for what they were. He understood everything in a flash, including the fact that if he were to give any outward sign, the fascinators would instantly command him to return to his former state, and he would obey. It was dawn when he entered the building housing the biggest of the TV studios. He consulted the building director and went up in the elevator. The cop in front of the studio recognized him. Why, you're Nada, he gasped. George didn't like to shoot him with the poison dart gun, but he had to. He had to kill several more before he got into the studio itself, including all the engineers on duty. There were a lot of police sirens outside, excited shouts, and running footsteps on the stairs. The alien was sitting before the TV camera, saying, We are your friends. We are your friends. And didn't see George come in. When George shot him with the needle gun, he simply stopped in mid-sentence and sat there, dead. George stood near him and said, imitating the alien croak, Wake up! Wake up! See us as we are! And kill us! It was George's voice the city heard that morning, but it was the fascinator's image, and the city did awake for the very first time and the war began. time there was a racist tree. Seriously, you were gonna hate this tree. High on a hill overlooking the town, the racist tree grew where the grass was half clover. Children would visit during sunlight hours and ask for apples, and the racist tree would shake its branches and drop the delicious red fruit that gleamed without being polished. The children ate many of the racist tree's apples and played games beneath the shade of its racist branches. One day the children brought Sam, a boy who had just moved to town, to play around the racist tree. Let Sam have an apple, asked a little girl. I don't think so. He's black, said the tree. This shocked the children, and they spoke to the tree angrily, but it would not shake its branches to give Sam an apple, and it called him a <laughs> I can't believe the racist tree is such a racist, said one child. The children momentarily reflected that perhaps this kind of behavior was how the racist tree got its name. It was decided that if the tree was going to deny apples to Sam, then nobody would take its apples. The children stopped visiting the racist tree. The racist tree grew quite lonely. After many solitary weeks, it saw a child flying a kite nearby across the clover field. Can I offer you some apples? asked the tree eagerly. Fuck off, you goddamn Nazi! said the child. The racist tree was upset, because while it was very racist, 
It did not personally subscribe to Hitler's fascist ideology. The racist tree decided it would have to give apples to black children, not because it was tolerant, but because otherwise it would face ostracism from white children. And so, social progress was made. You tell it to A. A entrusts it to B. B confides in C. C reposes the secret in D. And as it's not very far from E to F, F whispers it to G. And G stands for Gestapo. G stands for Gestapo. G stands for Gestapo. G stands for Gestapo. We could grow. We could develop. As we know that heaven is not a place. And happiness lives in the heart. Long as the world keep turning. Our duty is to keep on learning. You heard? Just when you think you've seen it all, we trip, we stumble, but we get back in stride each day all the way. Central Services. We do the work, you do the pleasure. Pleasure. The concept of solidarity is not only used and abused by the various reformist, syndicalist, and humanitarian movements and even power itself, it is also sadly emptied of any content by many anarchists. The leveling is such as to reveal a symbolic attitude worthy of the church but which allows us to put our conscience at rest. Counter-information and propaganda in the lead demonstrations, true processions, then nothing provoke a feeling of powerlessness, a pernicious frustration that sees justification open the way to resignation. We discover that everything crumbles there where the mentality of the group and quantity thought it was strong. Nothing changes as we enter a vicious cycle with mournful calls and miserable bartering with the state who wanted to fight. When individuals find themselves alone at night, no longer supported by collective strength, the arms of Morpheus transform the imprisoned comrades who wanted to support, to be one wanted to express one's solidarity into a real nightmare with no escape. Congratulations, you made it through 11 whole minutes of the Intergalactic Railroad. You made it through 8 o'clock in the morning by Ray Nelson, the short story that They Live was based on. You made it through The Racist Tree, a children's story about social change. You made it through a reading of revolutionary solidarity over some of the most obnoxious office sounds I've ever heard. And now, we're going to hear from our sponsors who have kindly allowed the Earth to exist. And then we're going to hear some Ursula K. Le Guin, and then nothing.
times, and always received versions of the same answers. The replies were always short and cryptic, and they really left me no wiser than before. Now that I've made the breakthrough, they make perfect sense. Sometimes I'd ask, are you the Illuminati? And be told, yes, we're the Invisible College. But when I'd ask, are you living people? I'd get the reply, no, we're dead people. Then I'd ask them, are you the Ascended Masters the occultists talk about? And the spirits would answer, no, we are the enemies of the Masters. I'd ask, are you from outer space? And be told, yes, but so are you. So are many people on this planet. If I asked, are you gods, I'd get one of two replies. Either, no, we are people just like you. Or, no, we are the enemies of the gods. no question in my mind. You just stated the truth of the matter. No, he didn't fall. He plainly never lived at all. You think you can fuck with someone like dust? Yo, what you mean, someone like dust? who walk away from Omelas. From the Wind's Twelve Quarters, short stories by Ursula K. Le Guin. <clears throat> With a clamor of bells that set the swallows soaring, the festival of summer came to the city Omelas, bright towered by the sea. The rigging of the boats in harbor sparkled with flags, in the streets between houses with red roofs and painted walls, between old moss-grown gardens and under avenues of trees, great parks and public buildings, processions moved. Some were decorous, old people in long stiff robes of mauve and gray, grave master workmen, quiet, merry women carrying their babies and chatting as they walked. In other streets, the music beat faster, a shimmering of gong and tambourine, and the, the people went dancing. The procession was a dance. Children dodged in and out, their high calls rising like the swallows crossing flights, over the music and the singing. All the processions wound towards the north side of the city, where on the great water meadow called the Green Fields, boys and girls, naked in the bright air, with mud-stained feet and ankles and long lithe arms, exercised their restive horses before the race. The horses wore no gear at all, but a halter without bit. Their manes were braided with streamers of silver, gold, and green. They flared their nostrils and pranced and boasted to one another. They were vastly excited, the horse being the only animal who has adopted our ceremonies as his own. Far off to the north and west, the mountains stood half-encircling Omelis on her bay. 
The air of morning was so clear that the snow still crowning the eighteen peaks burned with white gold fire across the miles of sunlit air, under the dark blue of the sky. There was just enough wind to make the banners that marked the race course snap and flutter now and then. In the silence of the broad green meadows, one could hear the music winding through the city streets, farther and nearer and ever approaching, a cheerful, sweet, faint sweetness of the air that from time to time trembled and gathered together and broke out into the great joyous clanging of the bells. Joyous! How is one to tell about joy? How describe the citizens of Omelis? They were not simple folk, you see, though they were happy. But we do not say the words of cheer much anymore. All smiles have become archaic. Given a description such as this, one tends to make certain assumptions. Given a description such as this one, one tends to look next for the king, mounted on a splendid stallion and surrounded by his noble knights, or perhaps in a golden litter borne by great muscled slaves. But there was no king. They did not use swords or keep slaves. They were not barbarians. I do not know the rules and laws of their society, but I suspect that they were singularly few. As they did without monarchy and slavery, so they also got on without the stock exchange, the advertisement, the secret police, and the bomb. Yet I repeat that these were not simple folk, not dulcet shepherds, noble savages, bland utopians. They were not less complex than us. The trouble is that we have a bad habit encouraged by pedants and sophisticates, of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil, and the terrible boredom of pain. If you can't lick em, join em. If it hurts, repeat it. But to praise despair is to condemn delight. To embrace violence is to lose hold of everything else. We have almost lost hold. We can no longer describe a happy man, nor make any celebration of joy. How can I tell you about the people of Omelis? They were not naive and happy children, though their children were in fact happy. They were mature, intelligent, passionate adults, whose lives were not wretched. Oh, miracle! But I wish I could describe it better. I wish I could convince you. Omelis sounds in my words like a city in a fairy tale, long ago and far away, once upon a time. Perhaps it would be best if you imagined it as your own fancy bits. Assuming it will rise to the occasion, for certainly I cannot suit you at all. For instance, how about technology? I think that there would be no cars or helicopters in and above the streets. This follows from the fact that the people of Omelis are happy people. Happiness is based on a just discrimination of what is necessary, and what is neither necessary nor destructive, and what is destructive. In the middle category, however, that of the unnecessary but destructive, that of comfort, luxury, exuberance, etc., they could perfectly well have central heating, subway trains, washing machines, and all kinds of marvelous devices not yet invented here floating light sources, fuel-less power, a cure for the common cold. Or they could have none of that. It doesn't matter. As you like it. I incline to think that people from towns up and down the coast have been coming into Omelis during the last days before the festival on very fast little trains and double-deck trams, and that the train station of Omelis 
is actually the handsomest building in town, though plainer than the magnificent farmer's market. But even granted trains, I fear that Omela so far strikes some of you as goody-goody. Smiles, bells, parades, horses, bleh. If so, please add an orgy. If an orgy would help, don't hesitate. Let us not, however, have temples from which issue beautiful nude priests and priestesses already half in ecstasy and ready to copulate with any man or woman, lover or stranger, who desires union with the deep godhead of the blood. Although that was my first idea. But really, it would be better not to have any temples in Omelis. At least, not manned temples. Religion, yes. Clergy, no. Surely, the beautiful nudes can just wander about offering themselves like divine souffles to the hunger of the needy and the rapture of the flesh. Let them join the processions, let tambourines be struck above the copulations, and the glory of desire be proclaimed upon the gongs. And, a not unimportant point, let the offspring of these delightful rituals be beloved and looked after by all. One thing I know is that there, one thing I know that there is none of in Omelas is guilt. For what else should there be? I thought at first there were no drugs, but that is puritanical. For those who like it, the faint, insistent sweetness of Druze may perfume the ways of the city. Druze, which first brings a great lightness and brilliance to the mind and limbs, and then after some hours a dreamy languor, and wonderful visions of at last, the very arcana and inmost hep, secrets of the universe. As well as exciting the pleasure of sex beyond all belief, it is not habit forming. For more modest tastes, I think there ought to be beer. What else? What else belongs in the joyous city? The sense of victory, surely, the celebration of courage. But as we did without clergy, let us do without soldiers. The joy built upon successful slaughter is not the right kind of joy. It will not do. It is fearful, and it is trivial. A boundless and generous contentment, a magnanimous triumph, felt not against some outer enemy, but in communion with the finest and fairest in the souls of all men everywhere, and the splendor of the world's summer. This is what swells the hearts of the people of Omelis, and the victory they celebrate is that of life. I really don't think many of them need to take Druze. Most of the processions have reached the green fields by now. A marvelous smell of cooking goes forth from the red and blue tents of the provisioners. The faces of small children are amiably sticky, in the benign gray beard of a man, a couple crumbs of rich, rich pastry are entangled. The youths and girls have mounted their horses and are beginning to group around the starting, starting line of the course. An old woman, small, fat, and laughing, is passing out flowers from a basket, and tall young men wear her flowers in their shining hair. A child of nine or ten sits at the edge of the crowd, alone, playing on a wooden flute. People pause to listen, and they smile. But they do not speak to him, for he never ceases playing and never sees them, his dark eyes wholly wrapped in the sweet, thin magic of the two. He finishes his tune and slowly lowers his hands, holding them. As if that little private silence were the signal, all at once a trumpet sounds from the pavilion near the starting line, imperious, melancholy, piercing. The horses rear on their slender legs, and some of them neigh in answer. Sober-faced, the young riders stroke the horses' necks and soothe them, whispering, Quiet, quiet, there, my beautiful, I hope. They begin to form and rank along the starting line. The crowds along the race course are like a field of grass and flowers in the wind. 
The festival of summer has begun. Do you believe? Do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No? Then let me describe one more thing. In a basement, under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelis, or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there is a room. It has one locked door and no window. A little light seeps in dustily between cracks in the boards, second hand from a cobwebbed window somewhere across the cellar. In one corner of the little room is a couple of mops with stiff, clotted, foul-smelling heads, standing near a rusty bucket. The floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch, as cellar dirt usually is. The room is about three paces long and two wide, a mere broom closet or disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting. It could be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but it is nearly ten. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective, or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear, malnutrition, and neglect. It picks its nose and occasionally fumbles vaguely with its toes or genitals as it sits haunched in the corner farthest from the bucket and the two mops. It is afraid of the mops. It finds them horrible. It shuts its eyes, but knows the mops are still standing there, and the door is locked, and nobody will come. The door is always locked, and nobody ever comes, except that sometimes the child has no understanding of time or interval. Sometimes the door rattles terribly, and opens, and a person or several people are there. One of them may come and kick the child to make it stand up. The others never come close, but peer in it, at it with frightened, disgusting eyes. The food bowl and the water jug are hastily filled, the door is locked, and the eyes disappear. The people at the door never say anything, but the child, who has not always lived in the tool room, and can remember sunlight and its mother's voice, sometimes speaks. I will be good, it says. Please let me out. I will be good. They never answer. The child used to scream for help at night, and cry a good deal, but now it only makes a kind of whining. And it speaks less and less often. It is so thin, there are no calves to its legs. Its belly protrudes. It lives on a half bowl of cornmeal and grease a day. It is naked. Its buttocks and thighs are a mass of festering sores, as it sits in its own excrement continually. They all know it is there, all the people of Omelis. Some of them have come to see it, and others are content merely to know it is there. They all know that it has to be there. Some of them understand why, and some do not. But they all understand that their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships, the health of their children, the wisdom of their scholars, the skill of their makers, even the abundance of their harvest and the kindly weathers of their skies, depends wholly on this child's abominable misery. This is usually explained to children when they are between 8 and 12, whenever they seem capable of understanding and most of those who come to see the child are young people, though often enough an adult comes, or comes back to see the child. No matter how well the matter has been explained to them, these young spectators are always shocked and sickened at the sight. They feel disgust, which they had thought themselves superior to. They feel anger, outrage, impotence, despite all the explanations. They would like to do something for the child, 
but there is nothing they can do. If the child were brought up into the sunlight, out of that vile place, if it were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing, indeed. But if it were done, in that day and hour, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Omelis would wither and be destroyed. Those are the terms. To exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in Omelis for that single, small improvement. To throw away the happiness of thousands for the chance of the happiness of one. That would be to let guilt within the walls indeed. The terms are strict and absolute. There may not even be a kind word spoken to the child. Often the young people go home in tears or in a tearless rage when they have seen the child and faced this terrible paradox. They may brood over it for weeks or years. But as time goes on, they begin to realize that even if the child could be released, it would not get much good of its freedom. A little vague pleasure of warmth and food, no doubt, but little more. It is too degraded and imbecile to know any real joy. It has been afraid too long ever to be free of fear. Its habits are too uncouth for it to respond to humane treatment. Indeed, after so long, it would probably be wretched without walls about it to protect it, and darkness for its eyes, and its own excrement to sit in. Their tears at the bitter injustice dry when they begin to perceive the terrible justice of reality and to accept it. Yet it is their tears and anger, the trying of their generosity and the acceptance of their helplessness, which are perhaps the true source of the splendor of their lives. Theirs is no vapid, irresponsible happiness. They know that they, like the child, are not free. They know compassion. It is the existence of the child that they're not and their knowledge of its existence that makes possible the nobility of their architecture, the poignancy of their music, the profundity of their science. It is because of the child that they are so gentle with children. They know that if the wretched one were not there sniveling in the dark, the other one, the flute player, could make no joyful music as the young riders line up in their beauty for the race in the sunlight of the first morning of summer. Now do you believe in them? Are they not more credible? But there is one more thing to tell, and this is quite incredible. At times, one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or rage. It does not, in fact, go home at all. Sometimes, also a man or a woman much older falls silent for a day or two, and then leaves home. These people go out into the street and walk down the street alone. They keep walking and walk straight out of the city of Omelis, through the beautiful gates. They keep walking across the farmlands of Omelis. Each one goes alone, youth or girl or man or woman. Night falls. The traveler must pass down village streets, between the houses with yellow-lit windows, and on out into the darkness of the fields. Each alone. They go west or north towards the mountains. They go on. They leave Omelis. They walk ahead into the darkness, and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist, but they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from Omelis.